Rachel, this is about you, not about anything else. What made you become a civil servant? Well, I had a very bizarre fantasy, um, a fantasy that I think would seem most unusual to most normal people. When I was about 19, 20, thinking about what I'd like to do for the rest of my life, I actually imagined myself, dreamt of myself, in an office with papers. Um, I was at, at university, and I found that I'd very much enjoyed uh, organizing student activities and so on. I was studying politics, and I liked thinking about the big questions about how society worked and so on. So to become a civil servant seemed to be a very good way of marrying my interests. And by complete happenstance and luck, I came across an advertisement for the Hong Kong government. I knew, I'm afraid, not very much about Hong Kong at the time. I also had a yen to travel. So it all came together like a, a magic potion, and I found myself doing the thing that I love most in the world. Was there something else that you thought you might have liked to have done? I thought I'm, one time I'd like to be a lawyer, but um, my family wasn't at all well off, and that would have meant extra study after I left university, and that really wasn't possible. I was also quite interested in the Broadway and feminism and more opportunities for women, so I tried to apply for graduate opportunities that were unusual for women in the 1960s and 70s, which was when I was applying like for what? jobs. Uh, I went to uh, a well-known engineering company, which I believe uh, is now actually not, no longer in existence. But I went along for the interview, and the interviewer, very pleasant person, but he just told me very frankly, he said, we've never employed a woman, and we don't think we're going to start doing so now, but we thought we'd have, a look, have you along to have a look at you. Do you think Hong Kong has changed in that respect? really dramatically in the last 30 or 40 years? I think the whole world has changed dramatically in that respect. Uh, I was still at the, I was at the cusp of the time when people really felt that there were jobs that women couldn't possibly do, that they were too emotional, their brains didn't work well, this sort of thing. And I think all that has changed. A little bit of tendentious question then. What about Chinese patriarchy? Is that a main obstacle? I think so, quite probably. I think we need to understand it, the, understand the whole situation better. Uh, the Women's Foundation recently did a, a study of uh, female entrepreneurs, mm. and one entrepreneur gave, I thought, a very good pithy answer as to what, what the obstacles were in the way for women entrepreneurs. And she said it's high rents and Chinese mums. So not patriarchy exactly, but that whole concept. It, within the family of what the woman's role is and what the man's role is. That's still that still It's interesting you, you pick up on, on entrepreneurship. I'm reading Joe Studwell's book on the Asian godfathers at the moment. And he makes the very interesting point that entrepreneurship in the Southeast Asian Hong Kong context, ultimately this is about men playing golf. And since that's about men playing golf, then the women are not going to get in there anyway. I think the fundamental point is correct, that it's always an issue for women. Can they be part of the old boys' network? Can they be part of the golf players? And, um, of course, I think what matters there is critical mass, the numbers that you get. When I started out in 1972, I expected to all, normally always to be the only woman at any meeting that I went to. By the time I ended, it was in 2006, it was quite possible that you would go to meetings where there was only a single man. But you've also mentioned this whole 
issue of crony capitalism. How do people in Hong Kong make money and so on? And I think that's changed enormously over the 40-odd years that I've been in Hong Kong. When I came here, it was an extraordinarily, genuinely entrepreneurial place. Um, there really were um, little people starting up and doing things completely off their own bat. But certainly now, I think we are seeing um, this issue that the big, the big businessmen now are not innovative, that they are rent seekers, that there is crony capitalism. And um, if we're really going to move forward, there has to be some way out of that. A genuine competition law? It's actually enforced yes, and includes government. Yes, uh, yes, that could that could be um, that could could indeed be an important step forward. But one of the things that meant a lot to me um, was working on the advisory committee on diversification, and that was set up at a time in the late seventies, mid late seventies, when Hong Kong had one a big question in its mind, which was that it had become very dependent on the textile industry. And the question was, how then can we diversify Hong Kong's industries and its economy and so on? And it did provide a blueprint for a lot of things that happened in the next few years. I mean, it is, it's, it's an approach that, I don't know, I think I have an in instinctive reaction against almost. I mean, you, you were in there on the ground creating the Arts Development Council. Um, my sort of immediate question is, if there had been someone who created an arts development council in 15th century Florence, would we have had Michelangelo? I agree entirely that public sector direct subsidy of the arts is very arguable. How do you decide which ones you're going to subsidise and why this sort of thing? But facilitating, particularly in providing um, educational facilities, training facilities, and um, nowadays, I think, too, in the context of Hong Kong, um, pure hardware in terms of um, places to perform mm -hmm. and so on, places to display things. That can be so important and literally But it's very supply-side supply dominated. Isn't the real problem in Hong Kong the demand side, what people want? I mean, I've often, yes. when, I, when I was working in the museum sector, I, I was very struck by the thought that the correct analogy for Hong Kong is somewhere much more like Britain in the 1930s, 40s and 50s, where people, what people want is Butlins and Blackpool, and they do not want high culture. Yeah, well, I mean, that's even more so, even more true, I think, still in, in the developed world, you know, how many people in UK really prefer what? We, we know that they, because we look at the figures and we mm. know that they, what they actually like is what um, some people might consider brainless talent shows to watch mm. on TV, that sort of thing. So you do, you, you open up a whole other set of so questions. How, how do you deal with the demand side? Yeah. I, I mean, in government, for example, Hong Kong has got one of the worst OECD rates of expenditure on education as a proportion of government expenditure. And there's never been any sign of that actually increasing as a proportion much in the last 20 odd years. Was there a lot of talk in government about an issue like that? Uh, I'm not sure that the, the money that you spend is so incredibly important in a sense. It's how you spend it that's so important, I believe. Um, in my days in government, and it's really important to look back to what the 70s and so on mm -hmm. were like, I mean, compulsory secondary education was only introduced 
at that time. And that was an incredible breakthrough. I mean, we, there was such a rush of refugees from China from the Second World War onwards. Uh, we're dealing with um, schools set up in the most primitive conditions on rooftops of housing estates. Uh, and with it, a shift system. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, uh, people having to go to school in shift. Mm. Just building a school and getting the kids into it was the, was, was the top priority. I think there's so much to be done in terms of um, introducing people to the arts. I think, especially while they're young, I think what's so important is to have an experience. And it won't hit everybody. We can't pretend that everybody is going to love Mozart, Shakespeare, or the other things that are high culture. But for, the thing, for those that do, it obviously can set a, a flame that il illuminates their entire life. That's one of the things I really hope about West Kowloon. I really hope that West Kowloon won't be just infrastructure. I really hope that they're going to think about going, how they're going to reach out to the kids who not only never come to the theatre, but so often never come to Central, never come to Kowloon. Mm -hmm. sort, never come, if they live out in the Northwest New Territories, which is really where the bulk of our population uh, live now. shift topic to governors. You've known a fair few, mm -hmm. starting with the uh, very tall Lord McNahose. Yes, indeed. How did, you, how did you rate them? Was there real difference between them, or was the office what was more important? Lord McNahose, I have to say, overall, and I think as time's gone by, I do rate him very highly. And I think the social changes that he brought to Hong Kong were really worthwhile. Was he, gonna, was he getting a role from something that pre-existed him. Um, was there a giant before him? I, I'm not sure about a giant, but I've certainly heard perfectly reputable people, including historians, say that David Trench, um, people like McDougall, who was chief secretary, laid the foundations that uh, McLehose was able to build on. And I think another thing to bear in mind is that if the, the riots in 1967 hadn't been dealt with so decisively and in a way that really uh, made the general population feel this is our city and we are in favor of it uh, there would have been nothing to build on at all and there I think obviously people pay quite rightly particular tribute to Sir Jack Cater who was an extraordinary figure too um, there was an extraordinary triumvirate during the 70s obviously with McLehose as governor Jack Cater as chief secretary and later as head of the independent commission against corruption and Philip Haddon Cave as financial secretary. I think there was a lot of individual tension between them, uh, but the overall effect was incredibly positive for Hong Kong. You think for Hong Kong, the people who make a difference, the people who make decisions, people generally at managerial level, what about ordinary Hong Kong people? I mean, they presumably are the sort of people who just got a buzz out of Chris Patton because he was such, so very much, a guy who knew how to work the crowd. Yes, uh, yes, and I think they, uh, I, I think they did respond to that. There was one governorship that we missed out on completely. We, we were Hong Kong civil servants, Edward Ude. but Edward Ude. Mm. Uh, my husband then was running Hong Kong office in Geneva, so we were living in Switzerland, and had really very little contact with how things were going internally 
um, in Hong Kong. But I know he was very popular. His wife was extremely popular and still is somebody who really had a great love of Hong Kong and Chinese culture. And there was obviously utter devastation uh, when he died, a, a genuine sense of, of deep mourning. Start with, or go back now, to the book, mm. uh, your, your book. Mm. My feeling, having, having read it, was <laughs> that it was extraordinarily Panglossian, mm -hmm. to use a word, and that all was for the best, or close to the best, and the best of all possible worlds for you. That was overall the way I felt about it. I felt that I was extraordinarily lucky. I started from um, a super ordinary, uh, you might say disadvantaged background and had ended up with a life that was extremely interesting and um, in a modest way uh, quite privileged. And now let's assume you write the epilogue to the epilogue in 10 years' time. Where do you think it's going to be, and what will you be writing in that epilogue to the epilogue? Much more complicated, much more complicated. Uh, uh, we were extraordinarily fortunate, I think, in Hong Kong uh, in the time that I was in the government. Uh, I think at that time it was sort of magic to be in the civil service. We had everything right together. We had money to spend. We had um, a population that wanted to drive forward. And, of course, there were lots of exceptions, but overall we had an ethos that was good. Um, but now I think we are facing a much more difficult situation. Uh, I think it's absolutely crucial for the question of democracy to be sorted out. Uh, I think that Hong Kong has become, I mean, people say ungovernable. It's become very, very difficult to get things done because of the peculiar constitutional settlement that we've ended up with. And um, so I think that in 10 years' time, either we will be uh, looking at uh, quite a standard kind of Western-style democracy um, with political parties, voting, and so on, or we will be looking at an extremely unsettled situation um, with uh, economic and political... You don't really believe the first has got a snowballs of happening, do you? Well, I hope, of course. Um, and it, I, uh, uh, just even a few weeks ago, I might have said, uh, agreed with you. But what we obviously really need is a Mandela moment. Uh, mm. People were... But we don't have a Mandela. We don't have anybody I within a flying furlong. Of a uh, well, we, we never step into the same river twice. History doesn't repeat itself. So we look for a different kind of Mandela. So I look around and I find a figure who doesn't look remotely like Nelson Mandela, but I think it's Zhang Yuk Singh. Mm. He's somebody who's associated with the establishment, a very pro-establishment figure. Although, of course, if you look back to 67, he was the exact opposite. Um, his brother was in prison. He himself was an avowed communist um, uh, activist and so on. Um, and he's a very analytical person. Um, he's a person, I believe, of great integrity. And these are the qualities that you really need to take us uh, to take us forward. I would also really hope to see Anson Chan playing again um, a somewhat more active role. But isn't she always going to be tarred with too much connection with 
the wicked colonial past? Uh, possibly, but if we are going to have this incredible breakthrough, everybody's got to put on one side, I think, all their baggage. Mm. Everybody's got to stop going, Yabu sucks, you're an XYZ, uh, and I can't talk to you because of that. Everybody instead has got to start thinking, wow, we're all Hong Kongers. We're in a very tricky situation, and we've got to try and find a way out of Are it. Are you a Hong Konger? Yes. Uh, uh, I've got a permanent ID card. Um, I've also got a British passport, so if things got sticky enough... So you wouldn't I'd jump go. like Alan Ziman or anyone who has said, OK, I'm so much a Hong Konger, I'm going to get a, Chinese a local passport, a Chinese passport. Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, uh, plenty of ethnic Hong Kongers are as calculating as I am mm. and have a connect, a, they're loyal Hong Kongers, they like it here and, and are totally attached to the place, but they have a Canadian, Australian, British or US citizenship. And you have further too. Cartland generations as Hong Kongers growing now? Uh, yes, my son is uh, living on Lama with his wife, who's mm. Filipina, and they have uh, their little daughter. Uh, growing up in the very special atmosphere of Lama Island, which I think is just a magical place for a childhood. Mm -hmm. Going to the local kindergarten, which I think is excellent. She's tremendously happy. She's uh, learning Cantonese? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, she's writing her characters very nicely with Fantastic. all the right stroke order. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's, it's just a wonderful way to grow up. There is, of course, the spectre at the feast of... China over the border, in the end, doesn't matter what Hong Kong decides, we can all agree to bury differences, come together, talk at the table, solve our future. But whatever the solution is, it has to be completely bought by Beijing. And what chance of that happening? Uh, again, um, perhaps you're saying Panglossian are over-optimistic, but I think better than many people believe. Uh, I think that at the time of the handover, uh, China was actually very ready to accept Hong Kong as something different. I think to some extent we ourselves then undermined our own position by not e accentuating our difference instead, being too ready to try and guess what China would like. I think that in 2003 an extraordinary thing happened when all those hundreds of thousands of people came out on the streets and in the quietest, most respectful way possible, said, no, we're not going to accept... You were in government at the time. Did that surprise you? Were, were, you, uh, that, were you in any way primed to think, oh, my goodness? Uh, 2003, of course, was the most extraordinary year altogether. We'd had this tremendous trauma of SARS, which, in terms of numbers of people who, who died and so on, probably wasn't that great a disaster, but in psychologically was massively upsetting. Um, so, yeah, I think it was the big, the size and magnitude, and also I'd have to say the entire dignity of the mm. demonstrations uh, probably took everybody by surprise. So we saw that happening, and we saw, as a result, the Article 23 legislation uh, being rolled back. Um, so Hong Kong can still surprise everybody in very good ways. And eventually, I believe there's a chance that's going to trickle back and influence China in ways that we may not anticipate now. That's a very nice, upbeat way to finish. Rich <laughs> Carlin, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you.